Welcome to No Baller. My name is Chris Rawl. It is Monday, June 21st. On today's show, two Game 7s in the NBA remind us the line between winning and losing is as fine as the tip of a shoe. Before we get there, please share this show with any sports fans in your life. Please go and download our app. You can find it under the name The Beehive TV on anything that your heart desires. Download on Android, iOS, Roku, Amazon Fire, you name it. Uh, Please do both those things and go about your day in peace. Let's start the show with a gambling tidbit. Why gambling should be legal in Utah. The United States Open occurred over the last four days. Uh, Men's golf, Torrey Pines. Going to be a grand old time. And I bet Rory McIlroy at 22 to 1 to win the United States Open. Rory, who has a very uh, notable past in, in coming close in majors and then flaming out on the weekend and leaving all of his fans heartbroken. So he's floating around the top of the leaderboard on Sunday. And I'm excited because I have a ticket on him. And I go, all right, let's go, Rory. Uh, his peak is as high as anybody's peak. He's an incredible talent. Uh, he goes through the first 10 holes. He's fine. He's one under on the day. He's right there at the top. And I go, just, we need a little bit more and, and the tournament's yours. Instead, we got a bogey on 11. We got a bogey on 16. We got a double on 12. He's nowhere to be found at the end of the round. His flame out isn't even spectacular like Bryson's was where he shoots eight over on the back and he's stomping around like a little meaty child. Uh, Roy just kind of, he fades off into oblivion and we don't see him. And it left me even more sour than if he just had flamed out. And at least I would have had uh, some entertainment that comes from watching Bryson make a quad or, or something along those lines. So why gambling should be legal in Utah for the day? Uh, it will make you feel like a corn dick for thinking that this is the major Rory pieces it all together. And now a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. The emotionality of sports, uh, nothing brings it out like the playoffs and nothing in the playoffs brings it out like game seven. Uh, the last month and a half or so have been an emotional roller coaster for a lot of fans of a lot of teams in the NBA and the NHL, myself included. Um, you know, I, I'm still going through the process of, of trying to find my way back in ice hockey after the avalanche lost to the Vegas Golden Knights in game six of the second round. A uh, very painful moment for me, a man with high, high hopes for the Avalanche's ability to win the Stanley Cup this year. I haven't even been able to watch hockey since then. Uh, we're, we're four games into both series uh, in the third round, and I haven't been able to watch any of them because anytime I turn on hockey, I go, nope, no, nope, it's too soon. You know, the wounds are still, they're, they're still too prominent. Uh, and that's the emotionality of sports for somebody like me who, who invests themselves deeply in this stuff because I care and I love it, and it's just something that I, you know... It's become a part of my life, and it's something that I enjoy doing. Uh, it also creates a great amount of sympathy for me for fans of losing teams. Uh, the Jazz go down on Friday night to the Clippers. Um, I won't be talking about that today. I, I'll be talking about that tomorrow. Um, but that's part of this process. Uh, the Jazz go down, and and I'm more aware because I, I've just experienced it with the Jazz of when teams go out just how you feel 
uh, and what runs through your mind as a fan, especially when you're sitting in an NBA season like this where it's so wide open that everybody who was left says, this could be the year for my team. So we have two game sevens over the weekend. Uh, Saturday night, we have Bucks-Nets. Spectacular game. Bucks, 115, Nets 111 in overtime. Um, and then last night, we have Hawks-Sixers, game seven. Uh, Hawks end up winning by seven, 103-96. Two very enjoyable basketball games as a neutral observer because I just got to enjoy the intensity that comes from a game seven where it's the first quarter and it just feels like the the entire world is riding on this jump shot with nine minutes to go in the first quarter. Anytime there's a 4-0 run, the coach is calling timeout and going, we can't let this game get out of hand. And I'm looking at the scoreboard and it's eight to four and I'm going, oh, you guys got to stem the bleeding. Like that's just what game seven brings out of of fans and of teams and of players. You know, it's it seems like the world is riding on the outcome of every individual play. So to watch something that intense is fun as a neutral observer, uh, is incredibly grueling if you are invested in one of those teams. Uh, when you win, it's the best. When you lose, it's the worst. There are two moments within each of those games that I want to start with. Uh, because the playoffs, as I always talk about, it's, it centers around the question, how do you respond to adversity? And the Bucks nets game, for me, it was the 5.30 mark of the fourth quarter. The Bucks have grabbed a defensive rebound. They're trying to get the ball up court. Chris Middleton bumbles it around, turns it over. Nets grab it. They whip it back to Durant, who catches it, dunks it, gets fouled by Pat Connaughton on the head, and one. The place is going crazy. It puts Brooklyn up by five with just over five minutes to go. When I'm watching this, I'm thinking, oh, man, it's slipping away. You know, Durant's playing awesome. Uh, the Nets, it just seems like it's going to be their night. The Bucks are going to have another long, long, sad offseason where they look in the mirror and say, how did we blow another playoff series that we were in and we just needed to change one tiny thing and we could have won? And instead, they come back on the ensuing timeout, goes to TV timeout. Uh, Bucks come out of that. Drew Holiday drills a three, who was three for 18 from the field up until that point. Now it's a two-point game. You're back in it. It's back and forth. It's back and forth. Bucks end up pulling it out in overtime. Um, it becomes part of the story, you know, this, how do you respond to adversity in Hawk Sixers? It was the 746 mark of the fourth quarter, which strangely enough centered around another and one Tobias Harris on the Sixers. He grabs an offensive rebound. He puts it back up as he's getting smacked, scores the free throw to put the Sixers up fourth. It's in Philly. The place is going crazy. It seems like the Hawks are balanced on the edge. Uh, I go, yeah, the Hawks, they, I don't think they're as good of a team as Philly. Seems inevitable that they're going to lose this. Joel Embiid, he's got to be the best player in the series. Uh, he's just on the strength of that. Philly should win. They're six and a half point favorites to begin with in this game. They're just ready to push the Hawks over the edge. So, you know, how do you respond? How do you respond to this adversity? Uh, they come back. Danilo Gallinari drills a three. We're off and running. It's back and forth. Hawks end up taking the lead. Game over. Um, I love moments like that within these high-pressure environments, especially as a neutral observer, because I can enjoy the game regardless of the outcome, and it makes my, my heart beat a little smoother and steadier than it does when my team is involved. But I always watch this stuff with great intrigue uh, because it's, it's really cool to see a team in circumstances that aren't going their way battle back and overcome them and now advance to 
the Eastern Conference Finals where the Hawks are going to be playing the Bucks. Uh, there, there are so many themes that come from these two Game 7s that I always follow within the playoffs. You know, I've done shows on, on all of these things. Uh, one of those is the lost performances of the playoffs. These great, phenomenal, individual performances that will gradually be forgotten as time goes on because they happen in a loss. Uh, in the Bucks net series, uh, as I was watching Game 7 and Kevin Durant was bawling out of his mind, and Giannis was bawling out of his mind. I just thought to myself, it is a shame that one of these players is going to have to lose because they've both been outstanding. Within Game 7 alone, Durant finishes with 48 points, 9 rebounds, 6 assists. Giannis combats that with 40 points, 13 rebounds, 5 assists. They both go about their business in drastically different ways, um, but they get to the same destination, which is... I'm doing a hell of a lot for my team, and if you just help me out a little bit, anybody on this roster, uh, we can go really far in the playoffs. And they're going back and forth. Giannis is super aggressive in the fourth. Kevin Durant's doing the same thing. Uh, at times, they both kind of seem unstoppable. Giannis, when he gets the ball, and he's just going to the, to the basket with a head full of steam. Durant, when he gets the ball virtually anywhere, and he's either scoring at the rim or at the mid-range or from three-point land. It's just two incredible performances from these two otherworldly stars. And ultimately, one of them has to lose. Uh, and unfortunately for the Nets, that's Kevin Durant, who between his performance in Game 5 and in Game 7, pieced together two of the better basketball games you'll ever watch from a player. And now that's two performances that are, are part of a series that his team lost. Uh, something that I always want people to be aware of. You can play phenomenally as an individual and your team can still lose. Uh, and you can also play poorly and your team can still win. There are a lot of factors that go into whether or not a team as a whole wins or loses a game. Uh, and these things, they're the razor-thin margins between winning and losing. Another constant theme of this show, constant theme of how I watch sports. Uh, it's interesting that Steve Nash is coaching the Brooklyn Nets, a dude who is incredibly aware and has lived the razor-thin margins uh, between winning and losing. In his case, it's always been losing, unfortunately, because Steve Nash has drawn the short end of the stick when it comes to chance and luck and the way the ball bounces in the playoffs. For nearly a decade with the Phoenix Suns, Nash was on one of the very best teams in basketball. And through a wide variety of reasons, that team never won an NBA championship. Uh, two moments that really come to mind. The first is the famous Robert Horry hip check in Game 4 against the San Antonio Spurs in the mid-2000s, Phoenix is tying the series up at 2-2. They're going back home for Game 5. Ori hip-checks Nash into the scores table near the end of the game. Amari Stoudemire and Boris Diaw are on the bench. They come running out. They're suspended for Game 5. The Suns lose that game. They lose the series. Great what-if in NBA history. Uh, Steve Nash's last chance, his real, real last uh, fantastic chance to win a title. 2-2 series against the Los Angeles Lakers. Game five, the time is dwindling down. Kobe Bryant has a shot to win. Airballs it. Who's there? Ron Artest. Catches it, puts it back, wins the game. Uh, Suns lose that series. Another great what if for Steve Nash for the Phoenix Suns, who now coaching the Brooklyn Nets this year for the first time. Team that was the prohibitive favorite to win the NBA championship coming into the season or coming into the playoffs, and even more so once the Lakers went out uh, and threw a long string of random chance and injury luck, Kyrie Irving rolling his ankle, James Harden pulling his hamstring. They're now out of the playoffs. 
fine line between wins and losses. Uh, I think to the Hawks Sixers game last night and the biggest play of that game, it's not even anything super noteworthy. If it happened during the course of a regular season game, you would never think about it ever again. It's just a dumb throwaway play. But in a game seven that the Hawks are leading by one and they have the ball, there's under a minute to go. Kevin Herter, he pulls up to shoot a three. Matisse Tybel is guarding him. He comes by and he just makes an ill-advised play. He swings for the ball, misses, and clips the back of Herter's head. Three-point foul. Herter drills all three free throws. Ensuing possession, Embiid turns it over. They throw an outlet to Gallinari for a wide-open dunk. That's game over. Uh, the line is very fine. You know, you think about what that game would be if Tybel just closed out and didn't hit Herter, who misses the shot. Um, One-point game, Philly has the ball. Who knows what happens? The line is always fine between a win and a loss. I think in the Bucks nets game on Saturday... One moment that comes to mind immediately is one minute left in overtime, tie game, and the Nets swing the ball around the arc. Who gets it wide open? Joe Harris, the best shooter in the NBA according to percentage in the regular season. Two of the last three years. This year, he shot 47.5% behind the three-point arc in the regular season. There's, again, according to percentage, there's nobody you'd rather have in that moment if you're the Nets. Uh, instead, he, he misses. Nets, or the Bucks come down, Middleton hits a jumper, that's the winning margin. That, I mean, that's just something that you'll think about for all of time. If you're Joe Harris, if you're his teammates, if you're a Nets fan, a fan of a team that's never won the NBA title, you'll be sitting there five years down the road and go, man, what happens if Joe Harris hits that and the Nets are up three and there's less than a minute to go and you just got to play defense? What happens? You never know. These are just the, the alternate realities that play out in the mind of fans uh, and that will just keep you awake at night. The biggest one of the whole weekend is the one that I reference in the top of the show, the tip of a shoe. Uh, the difference between winning and losing is always fine. <laughs> and when it manifests itself physically, it's always kind of, it's funny in a perverse way. I think back to last year's Jazz Nuggets series, and it was funny in the most perverse way that Mike Conley's three at the end of game seven, it just rattles in and in and in, and then it pops out, you know? There's no difference between that shot going in and out if it hits there a million times. In Bucks nets Kevin Durant has a jumper at the end of regulation. The Nets are down two. Guarded very well. He shoots this incredibly tough fadeaway jumper. Bangs it in the hoop with little over a second to go. The announcers are freaking out. They think it's a three. The Nets are up one. This is going to be an all-time shot. We'll never forget this. It's going to go up there with... Kawhi Leonard's Game 7 winner that rattles all the way around and falls in rather than out. Another incredible moment in NBA history where the line is fine. And it goes to replay. And Kevin Durant's shoe, it, by the slimmest of margins, you can see it touching the three-point line. So a three that would have won the game is now a two that ties the game. They go to overtime. They lose in overtime. What could have been? That's stuff that'll keep you up for all night long if you're a Brooklyn Nets fan. Uh... Coming back to Durant, I want to read a quote from Alex Schiffer of The Athletic that touches on something that I find to be very, very interesting. Short on options, Durant reminded everyone why he's arguably the greatest player in the world. Four nights after making history, with his 49-point triple-double in Game 5, he nearly did it again. After spending the past four seasons on super teams, Durant's performance in the series was a reminder that he can single-handedly carry a team against an elite one. On Saturday... Durant was reliable throughout the game. 
He scored 10 points in each of the first two quarters, 13 in the third, and 15 in the fourth. In overtime, his workload caught up to him. He shot 0 for 6 as the Nets mustered just one basket in the final five minutes. Durant's turnaround jumper with 1.6 seconds left sent the game to overtime tied at 109 and was inches from ending the series as the 6'10 forward size 18 shoes were on the line. End quote. Durant played a masterful game. He also was 0 for 6 in overtime after playing every single minute of that game. After doing everything in game five and playing every single minute of that game. And it's easy to comprehend how a workload of this size catches up with Kevin Durant. And we don't hold that overtime performance against him as we shouldn't because his game was incredible. And he was asked to do virtually everything for his team and did it for 95% of the game. Um, and just because he went 0 for 6 in overtime, that doesn't take that away. It's still a game that I will remember for a long time uh, just when it comes to Kevin Durant's individual performance. That applies to his Game 5 performance as well. Uh, but even the best players in the world wear down under a strenuous load. That's what this shows me. That's what this tells me. That's what my eyes told me watching the game. And it's easy to comprehend and to uh, forgive when it's Kevin Durant because we understand how good the dude is. He's won multiple championships with Golden State. Uh, he's played basketball at the very highest level for over a decade. Uh, he was constantly there with Oklahoma City playing in these huge games, uh, making huge plays, and turning in these incredible performances. And we understand it. And we are able to separate and say, this dude's awesome. He's great at basketball. Oh, he wore down at the end of this game because he was doing everything. That's okay. We're not going to hold that against him. It's easy for people to comprehend this. Which is interesting because we're also constantly going through the same process and applying the exact opposite logic to players who haven't won championships. Um, and that happens every single year. Just this year, there are three people who come to mind for me that have kind of suffered from this phenomenon. Uh, Luka Doncic would be one, who is one of the very best players in the world, who within the Clippers series this year, uh, he would play incredible basketball games, do everything for his team, and his stats in the fourth quarter were not as good as they were throughout the rest of the game because he was asked to do everything for the entire time he was on the court. Uh, and that's kind of something that people are now looking at Luca between the last two years uh, when he was on the Mavericks and they were a significantly worse team than the Clippers. And yet Luca helped carry the first year to a sixth game and this year to a seventh game. We don't uh, grant the same forgiveness to him that we do to Kevin Durant or to LeBron or to players that have won that we know, oh, well, yeah, even the best players, they're just going to wear down under this style of workload. Instead, for a player like Luka, it becomes, well, is this more an issue of he doesn't have it in the fourth quarter in a way that he does throughout the game? Is there something lacking from him? What can he be doing differently? Uh, Donovan Mitchell is another person that's within that category. A uh, guy for the hometown Utah Jazz who has, as a scorer, been as good as you could possibly ask from a guard, especially the last two years in the playoffs, but really throughout the course of, of his career in the playoffs, he's been incredible. Uh, he also struggled down the stretch of some of these games against the Clippers as the Jazz were losing, uh, and really within the fourth quarter of that game six, as things were slipping out of hand. And instead of saying, 
why is this happening? Uh, is there something that the Jazz could be doing that maybe would accentuate his talents better and not ask him to carry the offense for all four quarters and every single minute he's on the floor? Instead, it turns into a discussion of, is there something lacking from Donovan Mitchell in the fourth quarter? Uh, the last one that comes to mind is the dude on the losing end of last night, Joel Embiid, who is also one of the very best basketball players in the world, who also was asked to carry an incredible offensive and defensive burden for the Sixers, but really on the offensive side, as Ben Simmons was trying to crawl under a rock and hide, as Tobias Harris was bricking every shot in sight, as the Sixers were trying to grasp for anything when it comes to a perimeter-based player creating offense, that they were uh, willing to turn the keys over to Seth Curry or Frankie Korkmaz or these players that really shouldn't be in that role. Uh, and Embiid was still performing and doing all of these things that Joel Embiid does. And the Sixers were losing and Embiid was forcing some crucial turnovers at the end of Game 7. And he also did that in Game 6. Uh, and instead of just saying, these guys are asked to carry an unrealistic burden by their teams, what should be put in place around them to better utilize their talents and to put them in a better position to ball out in the fourth quarter because they're rested and they don't have to carry everything through the first and second and third quarters. Instead, it becomes a knock on these players, something that I find to be very frustrating, especially because fans can comprehend and understand when it comes to Kevin Durant's performance or LeBron James or Steph Curry or people that have won at the highest level. Uh, the questions, in my opinion, they shouldn't be about these players. It shouldn't be about Luka. It shouldn't be about Mitchell. It shouldn't be about Embiid or any of these other stars that haven't won. Uh, the questions should surround the team around them, uh, the management, and, and what do they need to be doing to uh, create a better team, and just the simple luck that goes into winning and losing within a game and a series. Uh, another constant theme of this show, possible to play bad and win or play well and lose, uh, something that I think we constantly forget. And it's also funny to see how narratives can almost change in real time because at that precipice of the Bucks-Nets game, 5.30 to go, Bucks are down five. Uh, Drew Holiday is struggling immensely and he struggled a lot throughout the series. Uh, Chris Middleton, he was up and down. He had games that he was awesome. He had games that he struggled immensely as well. But I could already see things taking shape for the two people around Giannis and even for Giannis himself, a dude who struggled from the line in the series and, and a dude who sometimes takes threes that you really don't want him taking. Uh, Drew Holiday finishes game seven with 13 points on five for 23 shooting. Not a good game. Chris Middleton, he goes nine for 26 from the field. Not a good shooting game, especially by Chris Middleton's standards. If those occur in a loss... Uh, the same things that are always talked about with the Bucks, they come back to the forefront. Crunch time offense is a bog. They need better perimeter creation. Uh, they, you can't rely on Giannis to create your offense. And the secondary people, Holiday and Milton, they're not really built for doing that for a championship contender. Instead, because their team scrapped and fought and Giannis played well and they were still in this game, uh, it put these two people in position to make some of the biggest plays of the game. Holiday was awesome in the last five minutes of regulation. He hits two enormous threes, including the one that puts them right back in the game at the five-minute mark. Uh, Chris Middleton hits the biggest shot of the game. Go-ahead jumper with 40 seconds to go in a tie game of overtime. Uh, that is the winning margin for game seven and for the series. Very interesting because if their team loses, if Kevin Durant's foot is not on the line, 
what we talk about when we say uh, Drew Holiday's individual performance and Chris Middleton's individual performance, it takes on an entirely different meaning. They played the exact same in the game, whether they won or lost. Uh, They didn't really shoot well. They made some good plays and they made a lot of bad plays. If their team wins, now we forgive all that and we say, they played great. If their team loses, we say, these people aren't built for the moment. That's what I always want people to remember when we try to extract meaning from an individual performance and how it applies to the win or the loss of a team. Trey Young from last night's game is another good example who has been one of the breakout stars of these playoffs. Last night, he shoots five for 23 from the field in game seven. Not good. (laughs) Very reminiscent of Kobe Bryant's six for 24 game in game seven against the Boston Celtics, which the Lakers end up winning on the strength of a lot of other contributions from other players. And we don't really care that Kobe shot six for 24. It ties into the idea that he's a winner and he, and he helped will his team to victory and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Trey Young, five for 23. However, his team kept him in the game. Um, and Kevin Herter, he scores 27 points. There's a lot of contributions from the rest of the Hawks roster. And it puts Trey Young in position to make three enormous plays down the last six minutes of that game. Three of his field goals are in that stretch, including... Uh, an enormous three with two and a half to go. Cold-blooded, few steps back from the three-point arc. Uh, it puts the Hawks up six. That's when it really set in that, oh my goodness gracious, the Hawks are going to win this game? Uh, it's possible to play bad and win. It's possible to play great like Kevin Durant and lose. Uh, just everybody, always be aware of this. The last thing I want to talk about uh, and something that I think just makes these losses carry even more meaning than they normally do. Uh, Flawed teams win championships. We know that. That's happened for all of time in every sport. This year within the NBA, why I think the the emotionality of, of basketball is taking on such a bigger weight is because this year more than any, a really flawed team is going to win a championship because this year has been a war of attrition. Uh, And there's been injuries. There's been COVID Uh, There's been so much random things that go into these series that now teams are are getting eliminated that we think are better than the team that they just lost to, but it doesn't matter. They're gone. And we're left with contenders that you look at and say, man, this is a list of flawed teams. But it's a great reminder, you know, that no team is perfect. You go back over every team that's ever won a championship and it's funny to remember what was said about them throughout the season, you know. Oh, the last year, the Los Angeles Lakers, well, it's going to be hard for them to win a championship because they are not a good three-point shooting team. And this is a three-point shooting league. And sooner or later, that's going to cost them. That could be against the Rockets or it could be against the Nuggets or the Heat or the Clippers if they play them. Uh, It's really going to be hard because they're in the bottom half of the league when it comes to volume and three-point shooting percentage. And and you're not going to be able to do that. You can do that for every team that's ever won a championship. Um, But once you won... It doesn't really actually matter, you know? No team is perfect. You're going to bring flaws to the table. Part of winning a championship is just how do we mitigate these flaws as best we can? Um, Part of that process is a time crunch. It's the championship window, which is very real and something that uh, I'm always aware of as I watch these teams. I I want to read a quote from Derek Bodner of The Athletic that ties into this idea of championship windows and time crunches. It all creates a feeling of being boxed in that is especially concerning for Sixers fans. It seems as though this team went from one extreme, exciting team with a pair of young stars, 
unlimited draft capital, and a ton of cap space to the other extreme. One injury-prone star in his prime with few trade assets, no high draft picks, and a payroll prohibitively deep into the luxury tax in the relative blink of an eye. That is the penalty of using two high draft picks on Markel Fultz, of failing to keep Jimmy Butler happy and bought into the program, of targeting Josh Richardson and Al Horford to surround the world's preeminent post-up threat, of talking yourself into Tobias Harris being more than he has ever been, and of watching as Ben Simmons' trade value plummets from its apex of a few years ago. End quote. This is the stuff that's really hard to take as a fan because just as quickly as a championship window can open, it can close. Uh, the Celtics have lived that the last few years. Nobody looked like they had a brighter future three years ago when they took the Cleveland Cavaliers to Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals as a very young team. They had assets, they had young talent, and now they're here three years later and they've kind of pissed it all away. And you're looking at a team that does have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but looks very far away from being an NBA title contender. A couple years ago, Sixers were in a very similar spot. Uh, The future, they trusted the process. The future looked so bright. Two incredible stars, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and and a plethora of just assets and capital and the ability to be flexible and make moves to build a championship contender. And they've gone through years of trying to do that and failed in a lot of ways when it comes to the management side, as as Bodner talks about, you know, whiffing on Markel Fultz. They had Jimmy Butler, somebody it seems like you probably want within the playoffs, and they let him walk. They replaced him with Tobias Harris, somebody probably want in a playoff series uh, as far as how much you're paying the dude, that kind of stuff. And, and we've watched Ben Simmons uh, fold like a cheap tent within the playoffs the last few years and really put the Sixers in position to be, uh, they're not able to mitigate his flaws. Specifically, how does he contribute on offense uh, and, and how do we play four on five on that side of the ball? And what do we do about his free throw shooting? So now you have the one injured superstar who brings a very big question of to the table of just how much can you rely upon Joel Embiid just from a health standpoint? He's never proven to be healthy at any point in his career. Why would that change? And the Sixers championship window, which is still open, but it's murkier than it's ever been. Uh, and they lose last night to the Hawks as heavy favorites within the series and as six and a half point favorites last night in game seven. And now they're sitting there going through the same process that all the other teams that have lost are going through. Uh, And one that, as a fan, I feel great sympathy for. Um, When you have a lot of hope for a team and it goes away, that always sucks. But in this year, when there are so many flawed teams that are still available, four of them to be exact, uh, teams that if you look at, you go, well, the Bucks. I mean... Two games into the Nets series, we were talking about how this team is atrocious. After they blew game five and Kevin Durant uh, roasted them on a spit, we were going, man, this team, they're just not a championship quality team. Uh, We talk about how their crunch time offense is just a literal bog. They don't know what to do half the time on the ball. It's almost unwatchable. And yet they're a team that's currently the favorite to win the NBA title. Flawed teams win championship this year more than ever. That's what's going to keep fans of every other team awake for a long, long time uh, when it comes to thinking why my team could have won a championship in 2021. The Hawks offense without Trey Young, uh, kind of atrocious, flaw. They have Bogdanovich now with a knee injury, who's been a revelation in these playoffs. So many questions uh, and so many flaws that these remaining teams have. Clippers, just a hit or miss from 
whether or not they're bringing effort in any given game. We've seen that for two years now. Not to mention Kawhi Leonard is not there. We don't know if he's coming back to play. The Suns, just general inexperience on the roster. An enormous question mark with Chris Paul hanging over the team. Shoulder injury in round one. COVID protocol right now that caused him to miss game one yesterday against the Clippers. Uh, These are all very flawed teams. They're all very good teams in different ways as well. Whichever team can mitigate their flaws the best, that will be the NBA champion this year. And it will also make how these playoffs played out steam for a hell of a lot of teams, uh, 15 of them to be exact. Why the Jazz are sitting at home going, this sucks. It's why uh, the Lakers are feeling the same way or the Sixers or the Nets or any of these teams. Uh, What could we have done differently? What kind of luck could we have had differently, uh, really, when it comes to injuries? And what do we need to do better moving forward? Um, These are the questions that are popping up. These are the questions that are going to have to be answered for the losing teams. Uh, And these are the questions that these four remaining teams are still going to be asking themselves when it comes to a flawed team winning a championship. So one of these teams is going to win a championship. And tomorrow I'm going to be talking all about a flawed team that did not. Uh, the Utah Jazz. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, If you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.